Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. As the ushers come by, they're carrying with them an outline sheet, and we're opening our Bibles this evening to 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5. <clears throat> In a moment, we're going to pray before we look into God's Word together this evening. And as we pray tonight, I think it'd be well for us to pray for the Smallies who are serving the Lord in Africa, that God would watch over them, coming back on the 11th of August, and until then, that God would use them and watch over them in a wonderful way. We received missionary correspondence, some of you were privy to that, from Josh Perkins in Papua New Guinea with regard to a dangerous circumstance that he encountered this past week, and we're praying that there'd be a good resolution. A helicopter pilot had flown in and landed in a village, and basically uh, the villagers were saying there was a fee that had to be paid for parking the helicopter there, and it erupted into quite some contention. So let's be praying for God to uh, watch over uh, Josh Perkins and the Perkins family there. And this evening during the prayer hour, uh, we were asked to pray for Frida Roots. Frida has been hospitalized recently and now is going back uh, home to Allisonville Meadows, and she's going home on hospice care. And I know she would appreciate our prayers for her as this journey for her begins that the Lord would watch over her in a very special way. So let's ask the Lord to bless in these requests and then open our Bibles together this evening. Father, we do pray for your wonderful blessings upon the Smalley family. Thank you for their stepping out by faith to serve you this summer. We pray you keep them from any illness, from any adversity, help them to be wonderfully fruitful, help them not only to be building memories but laying up for themselves treasures in heaven as they serve you there in Africa this summer, and that when they return on the 11th, they'd be able to give testimony and come back rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. Pray also this evening, Lord, that you'd be with our sister Frida Roos as she enters into this particular juncture and hospice care is given, that you'd make her comfortable, strengthen her in spirit first and foremost, that she might be a living testimony of your grace as she's been here in this church for so many years that you'd allow your spirit uh, through her to be contagious to others. We pray also, Lord, this evening uh, that you would be with Josh Perkins and Natalie and their family there in Papua New Guinea as they've uh, faced what it seems to be their first challenge along the way in a very difficult culture, in a very difficult land. Lord, we do pray that you'd allow them to be able to bring that airplane in uh, that we help provide for in a Christmas offering that airplane would be able to connect the missionaries together and give uh, a wonderful transport and security uh, in a situation that is often dire. So, Lord, use them. Give them wisdom for the circumstance that they face right now. And bless your word this evening, Lord, as we open it together. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Returning to 2 Kings chapter 5, the Spirit of God chooses to feature, to highlight, if you will, The miracles of Elisha, who other than the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, was used of God to accomplish more miracles on this earth than anyone else. So we open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. We notice really the 10th of Elisha's 15 miracles. We've already considered along the way how Elisha took the coat of Elijah and struck the Jordan River, and the Jordan River parted. Then we saw Elisha standing with the men of Jericho, as they complained with regard to the water in the city and how with the salt added to the water, God made the water pure. And then as he was leaving Jericho, there were some young men who taunted him 
Go down, ye bald head. And those young men were met with some bears who came <clears throat> to punish uh, the mockers. You recall how that uh, Elisha was with the kings in the place near Moab when he instructed them to dig ditches and the water flowed in those ditches in that otherwise dry land. And then we've discovered along the way the multiplication of the widow's oil. We've seen a Shunammite woman who, not asking for a favor, is given the blessing of a child uh, with her old husband, a miracle child born, and then that miracle child resurrected along the way by recording of miracles. And a purification of a poison stew uh, was considered, and the barley loaves, 20 barley loaves, and how they, they fed a multitude. As we open our Bibles to 2 Kings 5 this evening, we discover the healing of Naaman. It's the best known of Elisha's many miracles. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we're introduced to Naaman, who's the captain of the host of Syria. And the Spirit of God seems to be teaching us a lesson in 2 Kings chapter 5 that I hope we'll understand carefully and live on the basis of this lesson. The Spirit of God wants to make it clear that the power of God is available to those who step out by faith. And we're going to see Naaman stepping out by faith this evening and others along the way. But as we open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, there are actually four characters who stand out in this text. There is Naaman, the captain of the host of Syria. There's a maiden, unnamed in this text, how many flannel graph stories and how many Sunday school stories have spoken about the maiden who served with the host or the captain of the host of Syria? Elisha, of course, is in this text, and then Elisha's servant plays a role in the story that we developed this evening. His name is Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. Each of these individuals in 2 Kings chapter 5 teaches a deeply spiritual lesson, a lesson for all of us who would have our ears open and our hearts open this evening, that when we step out by faith, we can come to know the power of God, the blessings of God along the pathway. And so we're introduced tonight in 2 Kings chapter 5 to Naaman. Naaman is a great man who has a great need. As we look at verse 1, there are six descriptive phrases that are used to introduce us to Naaman. He was captain of the host of the king of Syria. There's the first introductory phrase. He was a great man with his master. He had high favor with his master, the king of Syria. He was an honorable man. He was a man of considerable character. And then we read this phrase, that through him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. You may recall how Ahab, the king of Israel, the northern tribes, how that Ahab had put an alliance together with Jehoshaphat, the king of Jerusalem and the southern tribes. And in that alliance together, Ahab, who was always scheming, had quite an interesting plan. Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to dress like all the other soldiers. You dress like the king, and we're going to go into battle together. I don't know about you, but I think I'd be smart enough to say, I don't think I like this plan, Ahab. How about we trade roles? But they did that. And you recall how that God sent them out into the battlefield, and though Ahab was dressed like any of the other soldiers, the Bible tells us that an arrow fell without anyone actually aiming that arrow, and it caught Ahab between the harnesses, and Ahab ultimately would die. It is in some of the Jewish targums, which are the ancient writings of the Jews, the commentaries of the Jews, if you will, that Naaman is named as the one who drew the bow 
at a venture and shot the arrow, which actually fell Ahab when he fell in his chariot. And so we discover this man now named in chapter 5 and verse 1, Naaman. He was a man of honor, highly admired in Syria. And then this final phrase that introduces him to us. He was a leper. The psalmist says in Psalm 39 and verse 5, every man at his best is altogether vanity. Every man in his best state is altogether vanity. Years ago as a teenager, a senior in high school in West Virginia, my Sunday school teacher, Bernard Birch, invited me to go on a visit with him. Bernard had the deepest bass voice of any man I'd ever met. When he told you you ought to do something, you believed him. Brother Chuck, he said, I think you need to go on a visit with me. I'll pick you up on Thursday. Yes, sir, Bernard, I'll be there. He picked me up on that Thursday and took me into a home of a family that I'd never met before. We sat in that home, and I'd never heard fighting like that in my life. And after surviving the visit, I sat down in the passenger seat of Bernard's car, and I said, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And Bernard looked at me, and he said, Brother Chuck, when pigeons are flying in the sunshine, they look awful pretty. Ain't nobody wants to live in a pigeon coop. I've been puzzled over that statement now for, <laughs> for years and years. But I think I know what he meant. I think he meant that there are secret problems in everyone's life. And often they're revealed when we get closest to them. And so it is as we get close to Naaman this evening, we discover this is a man who's living under a death sentence. He was a man of great attainment. He was captain of the host of Syria. He was a man of great fame. He had felled the king of Israel. He was a man with a great problem. His problem was leprosy, and leprosy was a fatal disease. Leprosy was a fatal disease that isolated its victims and took their lives by increments. It took their lives slowly. God chooses leprosy to illustrate sin. There are two entire chapters that illustrate sin by way of the disease of leprosy. Leviticus chapter 13 and Leviticus chapter 14 both tell us about leprosy, the contagion, the awful way that it would cause the death of those that it struck. And God allows us to look at the laws, he says in chapter 14 of Leviticus, the laws of the lepers to remind us that we all have a spiritual problem, that spiritual problem, though often hidden. We go out after all in the sunshine. and People think, well, but often that spiritual problem of sin, while hidden, is a great problem that puts us in great peril. You see, the plague of sin and the plague of leprosy are in many ways alike. They both have an insignificant beginning. When people have leprosy, they often might find themselves with just an itch, just a little spot. But that insignificant beginning becomes a disease that's infectious in nature. The Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 5 of the insignificant beginning of sin, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, death passed upon all the world for that all have sinned. That insignificant beginning has an infectious nature and we need to be aware of that and we need to be cautious because of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 reminds us that evil communications can corrupt good manners. Sin has an amazing toxic way of spreading And it isolates us, just like the leper found himself isolated. Even so, 
Sin will isolate us even from the presence of the Lord. For the Lord, Habakkuk tells us in chapter 1, is of, of purer eyes than to look upon sin. And always, just like leprosy, sin has an inevitable result. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ian Mortimer writes the Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval England, a handbook for visitors to the 14th century. He goes back in time, if you will, and writes a traveler's guide, helping people to understand the circumstance of the culture of medieval England about the time of the 14th century. He writes this, Before 1348, leprosy is the most terrifying illness which people can imagine. Leprosy is known as Hansen's disease, but in the 14th century, it can include all manner of skin ailments, including eczema, psoriasis, and lupus. Basically, if you have a skin disease which results in long-term disfiguration, you need to cover it up for as long as possible. If it's seen, if it's judged by other people to be possibly leprous, then in line with the decrees of the Third Lateran Council of 1179 A.D., you'll be shunned by society, forced to wear a covering cloak, to ring a bell wherever you go, and regarded as one of the living dead, he goes on. Your leprous breath will be considered to be similar in quality to the miasma, which is around the cesspits and likely to lead to leprosy in others, so no one will tolerate your presence. Perhaps some people will pity you in your ailing condition and look upon your situation charitably. Many will not. They will see your affliction as divine judgment on you for your sinful life, and your suffering as nothing more than the opportunity to atone for your sins and thereby, thereby purify your soul before you die. He continues, leprosy is not uncommon in 1300. If you catch it, You'll find that it progresses very slowly through your body, removing first your sensations in your hands and your feet, later paralyzing your extremities, leaving them badly ulcerated. After a few years, your fingers and toes will seemingly melt off. You'll probably bleed from your palms. Your body hair and eyelashes will fall out. You might suffer from claw foot or claw hand. At some point, the bridge of your nose will collapse, and you'll be left with a smelly liquid constantly running from the gaping wound where your nose once was. The ulcers in your larynx will grow and give your voice a coarse, croaking quality. You'll probably lose some teeth. Your eyeballs may become ulcerated. Your skin will be marked with large nodules. Ultimately, you'll be wholly deformed, stinking, repulsive, and blind. That's why it's called living death. That's why people are absolutely terrified of it. And that's why if you catch it, very few people will dare to ever come near you. What a description of the world in which we're living. Yes, Naaman was leprous, but all around us there are those who are living in such a similar condition, outwardly successful. They fly beautifully in the sunshine. My, when you look inside the coop, you come to realize that all's not so well. I think of the politicians who polish their image, hoping to be accepted and voted for in the polls. When that image begins to crumble and people realize what's going on behind the scenes, how that sin has been eating away at the soul. I think of businessmen who go to work on Monday mornings and those who work around them think of them as successes, but God sees them as falling short. God says in Isaiah 1 and verse 6, from the sole of the foot even to the crown of the head, there's no soundness in it. Only wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. 
So it was with Naaman. He knew what his end would be. It was a long-term hospice sentence that no one wanted in that day, and so it is with our neighbors. As the ulceration of sin continues to grow, sin, you see, has an insignificant beginning, an infectious nature. It isolates us by its very nature and ultimately, inevitably, will result in the chastening hand of God for the wages of sin is death. Now, the Spirit of God in the text to which we've turned is going to make it clear that the power of God is available, praise the Lord, that the power of God is available to all who by faith will simply step out. Here we discover a great man with a great need, and we're introduced then in verse 2 to a little maid with a big message. A little maiden comes to light in verse 2, for the Syrians had gone by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. She waited on Naaman's wife. Her name is never given to us in the Holy Scriptures. Wouldn't you like to meet her in heaven one day? Again, how many people have heard her story in Sunday school classes? How she, this slave maiden, is now waiting upon Naaman's wife, and she said unto her mistress, Would God that my Lord were with the prophet that's in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. If you think about this little maiden, wouldn't you expect that the condition that she endured would have kept her silent? She'd been taken away from her family. She'd lost her freedom. Her future had been stolen from her by the Syrian army. You'd think that bitterness would have clouded her soul. You'd think that her anger toward her captors would have kept her from saying anything positive. She's 150 miles from home. In her mind, she can re recall over and again what it was to leave her parents behind, her, their tears as she was stolen from them, the screams perhaps of her siblings who saw her taken captive. Now she is placed in the home of Naaman. Now she's waiting on Naaman's wife. This captive servant could have had a life filled with bitterness, and everyone would have said, you have reason to be bitter. She could have had a life that was filled with anger, and everyone would have said, if I were in your situation, I'd be angry too. But not so. This little unnamed maiden had a kind heart, even toward those who had so abused her. She's like Joseph, who would say to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God has meant it for good. And so her concern makes her speak her concern makes her speak. She sees the great need of her master. And this sweet little maid brought a word of hope. Divine grace was sustaining her. And as she was sustained in God's grace, she spoke of the possibility of salvation to one who had so terribly abused her. You see, her captivity didn't take away her faith. Her circumstances didn't silence her. In the midst of her adversity, she spoke out for the Lord, <clears throat> and so her example stands before all of us this evening. <clears throat> for all of us have been given the opportunity to speak for the Lord in such a time as this. Hugh Hewitt, in his book, The Embarrassed Believer, what a title, The Embarrassed Believer. Thank you, Matt. I have it in the pulpit. I'm fine. Um, I think once in my lifetime I've drank water, and some people have probably thought you should have done it a hundred times, Pastor Phelps. But I labor on if you'll labor with me. Thank you, Matt, for your kindness. 
Hugh Hewitt, I was thinking somebody was coming down the aisle to attack me, but that was good to see. He's just actually bringing water. Hugh Hewitt, in his book, The Embarrassed Believer, contends that most Christians are embarrassed believers. They don't talk of their faith. They don't tell anybody about what church they go to. They don't have their Bibles on the corner of their desk. They don't enter into spiritual conversations. And then he says this. And the result has been the dramatic increase of pornography and violence over the past five decades. The values of the world today pot pale in comparison to the values of the mid-century last. He writes, quote, from Paul's imprisonment and the martyrdom and martyrdom to this year's murders of Christians around the globe, there's an ennobling and inspiring thread of courage uniting saint after saint. It's an inheritance of every, every believer. And it's this that we're called to. For Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels attending his way. Hugh Hewitt continues, too many of us are embarrassed, silent, secret agents for God, yet we're called to be bold witnesses of Jesus Christ. And then he closes with these words. Christians in America, trying to save the lost, comfort the suffering, cure the ill, clothe the naked, and bring joy to the despairing, will not make a significant and lasting impact unless they do so openly and without apology as Christians. The witness must accompany the work, or the work will not endure, and the world is hungry for our witness. Be a bold witness. Like the little maid who had excuse or reason, if you will, for being silent as her master suffered. But she had a big message. She stepped out by faith. And because she stepped out by faith humbly, she discovered that God could give her power. Now, there's a third noteworthy character, of course, in 2 Kings chapter 5. And that third noteworthy character is a humble prophet who has a divine remedy. The captain of the host of Syria begins a humbling journey to the home of Elisha in Samaria. Verse 5, the king of Syria said, go to, said, go to, go. I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he, Naaman, departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, ten changes of raiment. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith been sent, sent Naaman, Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. So we unpack the passage that's before us. I think that there are three truths that ought to stand out on the page of Scripture. As this leprous Syrian soldier shows up, we discover that he is assuming, at least the king of Syria is assuming, that a remedy could be purchased, that the remedy that had been offered to Naaman could be purchased. And so he's carrying silver and gold and new raiments. The king of Syria sent an enormous amount of silver, an enormous amount of gold, and ten beautiful changes of clothing. 
And we're reminded that there are many people who believe that the sin problem that they're dealing with in their soul can be solved by some kind of financial remedy or some kind of personal exercise that will remedy them of their sin. But no such remedy can be found. Simony. Simony is a word that's not used as much today as it was used in the Middle Ages. You recall Simon in the book of Acts was a sorcerer. And how that Simon, seeing the power of God upon the apostles, asked the question, what can I give so that I can have that power in my life? And so his name has ever been a name of infamy. Simony is the selling of religious favor to someone who offers money. The Middle Ages were filled with it. Whether it be the sale of indulgences to somehow reduce somebody's sentence in purgatory, or the selling of a bishoporic to the son of a nobleman, Noblemen would offer money to the church so that their sons could be set up for a lifetime of ease while living in the lap of luxury that the church would provide, simony. In reality, we look at this passage and think that this king of Syria and Naaman now, by the counsel of the king of Syria, is expecting that somehow his cure can be purchased. No cure for sin and no cure for leprosy could ever be purchased. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3 says, They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. The remedy that's offered in this passage may have been missed because of the pride that's injected into the passage. I read in verse 10, And so it was so that when Elisha the man of God had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me. He shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses, with his chariot, and stood in the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in Jordan seven times. Thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he surely will come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. The servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Oh, the pride that enters into the circumstance here of this man who is suffering from leprosy. And how often it is true that the greatest enemy of the soul is the enemy of pride. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him, Proverbs 6 reminds us. And the very first on the list is pride. Sometimes pride is protected by those who misrepresent the message. The little maiden had simply said, Oh, that my master could go to the prophet in Samaria. He surely could heal my master. The king of Syria, having heard of the circumstance, adjusts the message to save face for Naaman. Naaman, why don't you take this gold and this silver and this letter that will tell everybody there in Samaria what a great person you are. Take it and visit the king. Even so, there are well-intended people along the way who will come across those who are 
spiritually suffering from leprosy. They know that they're going to die and live somewhere somewhere forever. And friends, family members, even the well-trained and the astute in the community will come along and say, you know, what you need to do is you need to turn over a new leaf. You need to give some of your money to this project or that project. If you get faithful about going to church, if you do this and if you do this and if you do this, then you can save your pride and have the same outcome. That's a lie from the pit. If you hold on to your pride, you'll never have the outcome of forgiveness that God has offered. Even so, in the circumstance that we discovered this evening, here's a man who's offered a simple remedy. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River. And his response, why would a Syrian ever dip himself in that dirty, muddy, lousy cesspool of a river? Don't you know about the rivers in Syria? I'm not going to do that. Thank the Lord that there were some faithful men round about who said, Master, if he asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? He simply asked you to do a simple thing. And how, how are you responding in such a manner? And so it is that the Lord asked a simple thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And there are those who were offended. Why should I believe? I'm a good person. Repent of your sin and turn to the one who alone can save. Why? I'm not a sinner. I'm a great person. And as long as you hold on to that, that thought you'll never truly know salvation. This passage tells us that the remedy that's being offered needs to be accepted by faith. And so I read in verse 14, then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. (laughs) He returned to the man of God. He and all his company came and stood before him. He said, behold, now I know that there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he, Elisha, said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I'll receive none. He urged him to take it. He refused. And Naaman said, shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifices unto other gods, but unto, thy, unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Reman to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Reman, when I bow down myself in the house of Reman, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. He wants sacks of dirt from Israel to take back on mules so that he can build a little place where he can worship the Lord God of Israel in Syria while already deciding he's going to compromise and he wants to be pardoned. But along the way, he's dipped himself, and by faith he comes out of that river with the skin of a little child. He's living proof of the wonderful message of James chapter 4, where the Word of God says that those who are proud, God will resist, but those who are humble, God will show mercy to them. There's one other character in this passage. He's presented as a total failure. He's a sad character. We could wish that his story would not have to be told. But in this story where people are stepping out by faith and receiving the power of God, whether it be a little maid or Naaman or Elisha, there's one person who contradicts the rest. His name is Gehazi. Gehazi started off with a great opportunity as Elijah had Elisha as his servant, Elisha had Gehazi as his servant. Gehazi is about to become the victim of the 11th miracle 
of Elijah, or Elisha rather. Gehazi puts profit above principle and riches over righteousness, and he pays a terrible, terrible price. Gehazi is first introduced to us back one chapter before in 2 Kings chapter 4. And even there, his character is suspect. When we meet Gehazi, we come to see a man who sees a woman in duress, the Shunammite woman, whose son has died, and he pushes her away. He's not empathetic with her concerns. He takes the rod of Elisha, as Elisha has instructed him. He runs ahead and puts the rod of Elisha upon the deceased son of the Shunammite woman, and nothing happens. He's involved in the work of the Lord, but he's involved in the work of the Lord without any power upon him. It seems to be Gehazi in the end of 2 Kings chapter 4 who sees 20 loaves and sees all of the sons of the prophets and makes this observation. What are these few loaves among so many? But now the Spirit of God puts a spotlight on Gehazi and Gehazi's character. It's revealed to us in verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master hath spared Naaman, this Syrian, in not receiving at his, at his hands that which he bought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take someone, somewhat of him. I want you to see that his reasoning was flawed. Gehazi labored with Elisha, but in a moment of weakness, he let his covetous heart lead him astray. He failed to realize that God's rewards are eternal. He failed to realize that God's glory is worth more than any treasure that a Syrian general could ever offer him. But Ecclesiastes reminds us in chapter 8 that the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. He runs, the Bible tells us, he runs for the riches. For we discover in verse 21 that Gehazi followed after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him, and he said, is everything well? Jude verse 11 says, woe unto them. For they've gone the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now we discover that like Achan, he's about to receive something that he ought not to receive. For we read now in verse 22, he said, All is well, but my master hath sent me, saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments." Naaman said, be content, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags and two changes of garments, laid them into two of his servants, and they bare them before him. When he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house, and he let the men go, and they departed. And he, Gehazi, went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. Oh, he said unto him, Went not my heart after thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maidservants and the leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever? He went out from the presence as a leper white as snow. He discovered that his reward was fleeting. He could hide it, but not from God. He felt rich for a moment, but he didn't understand that riches make themselves wings and they fly away. And the rebuke of the prophet that he endured was firm. Gehazi's actions 
would impact his family. The Bible reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil, which some having coveted after have gotten to themselves a great piercing to their soul. Gehazi could be added to that list. As a man who coveted after money and lost his personal health, his personal reputation, he lost his family even through the generations. What lessons there are in 2 Kings chapter 5. The Spirit of God wants to make it clear that God's power is available to those who will humbly step out by faith. We learn along the way that Naaman, a great man with a great need, steps out by faith and discovers a cure that God would give by humbly submitting. We read of a little maiden who steps out by faith, a little girl with a big message. Because of her big message, an entire household is saved. We read of a humble prophet who steps out by faith and gives a message that wasn't popular, but a message that was ever so powerful. And Then we read of a greedy servant who took a different road. He didn't step out by faith. He didn't know the power of God. He didn't follow along God's pathway. Instead, he received to himself the judgment of God. And so we ask the question this evening as we review 2 Kings chapter 5, where are you? Where are you? Are you submissive to the will of the Lord? Are you serving the Lord? Will you speak for the Lord? Are you so bound by sin that the discovery of your sin is certain? For be sure your sin will find you out. May God help us to learn the lessons that are in the Old Testament so we might live for His glory as New Testament saints. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.